And we're back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and the rest of the world at cfmu.ca, our online streaming service, plus archive, plus fundraising announcements and so forth. So uh, today uh, in the studio, I have Khaled Al-Kasimi, and he is a PhD candidate here at McMaster University in the Department of Political Science. Khaled, thanks very much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, what we try to do here on the program, or at least one of the things we like to do, is highlight interesting research that's going on all over the world. And I mean, in this case, we have someone right here at McMaster who's touched upon a lot of topics that are of interest to this program, whether it be Africa or colonialism or the military and so forth. In fact, the title of your article, this is a uh, full-length research paper, uh, and it was published in the African Journal of Political Science and International Relations. It's called the U.S. Informal Empire, U.S. African Command, or AFRICOM, expanding the U.S. economic frontier by discursively securitizing Africa using exceptional speech acts. Um, this is about Africa. It's about AFRICOM, and that's obviously the focus of the paper. But really, a large part of it is the changing perspectives uh, towards Africa that are employed by the United States, for example. I mean, we're looking at how a hegemon sees Africa in part. Absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, the perception has, there's always been um, trends in how the U.S. in particular sees Africa, but there have also been changes. And one of the key words in your paper that, you know, helps define the whole thing and helps us understand as, as readers on the outside is the word securitization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that to be really interesting because you pointed out in the Cold War period, for example, you know, the late 20th century, there had been more than one way of seeing Africa um, and more than one U.S. agency that was employed to oversee Africa, mm. you know, in terms of its relationship to the United States. But the approach towards Africa was often seen as a political or politicized or developmental. Exactly, yes. But that's been changing in recent years, especially after September 11. Mm-hmm. And it's become much more of a securitization approach. I think that's undeniable. Uh, and you very strongly point that out. I'm wondering, can you tell us more about this idea of securitization, like what it means and, and how it's being employed to discursively discuss Africa? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Brendan. Um, well, the whole notion of securitization, I was actually informed about it uh, during my masters at McMaster. Uh, So it's pretty much this conceptual framework analysis um, developed by the Copenhagen School of Political Science. And what it does is it allows you to um, kind of deconstruct how a specific issue is, uh, as you said, moved from being a politicized question to a securitized question, right? And what this entails is obviously throughout the 20th century, as you pointed out, uh, Africa was, historically speaking, from a histori- histori- historiographical perspective, it was always perceived as uh, this heart of darkness, uh, a place with no history, it's ungovernable, it's infested with you know failed states, terrorists, what have you. Um, so securitization fits here where by the 1990s, um, what you start seeing is Africa as a continent shifting discursively from being spoken of as a political issue to a securitized issue. So securitization in this sense would entail 
us speaking about an issue or a continent in this in this specific case in a manner that is threatening, right? And this is not to say that Africa wasn't perceived as threatening during the Cold War, right? We've all we're all familiar with the imperial baggage of you know Patrice Lumumba, Emil Cabral, you know uh, Thomas Sankara, all these revolutionaries, which to an extent uh, were eliminated through. Um, uh, you know, through uh, agencies, Western agencies getting involved in uh, trying to undermine their struggle. But what you have in the 90s is the shift where Africa becomes um, discursively spoken of in a threatening manner. And this is a situation where you have uh, political actors with uh, political capital, which starts speaking about a group of people or a continent in this case, um, in a manner that threatens its national uh, interests, okay? In this case, Africa, um, in the 1990s and post 9-11, as you said, you start seeing memos from think tanks, right? Uh, which start discussing things, things like, I can, I can relate to one. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking in terms of what I remember from the paper, um, there's been examples of seeing what they call weak states and failed states yes. in Africa generally as being breeding grounds for terrorism, yes. places where warlords can set up shop, and so on. Now, the empirical research on this has not given exactly the same conclusion, because mm -hmm. as you suggested in the paper, states that are weak or have difficulty governing themselves do not automatically become headquarters for terrorist mm -hmm. groups. But the way that the U.S. has discussed Africa since 9-11 in particular has been as a place where threats local to Africa, where there's some kind of problem occurring, become redefined as U.S. national security interests, threats to the United States mainland itself. Mm -hmm. So it conflicts, and they can be bigger than or different than a military issue. It can be a flood. It can be a disease, right? And now these have become U.S. national security threats. That's, that's a really interesting point. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons why I was interested in writing about AFRICOM. Uh, because Af the African Union had actually developed mechanisms and institutions in 2001 to actually deal with issues as droughts, famines, uh, that actually do not require a military approach to deal with it. And that's actually the problem that we're living with when it comes to Africa. Uh, the United States and mostly G7 countries, um, the way they deal with African issues is by adopting a militarized, realist, realpolitik approach. And um, Africa, or African countries specifically, they actually developed um, the PSA, which is uh, kind of this peace corps, uh, this peace battalion that actually takes care of um, specific issues. Let's say there's a famine or a drought, or let's say there's a, a, a you know military issues, right? They actually. Um, in 2001, they would intervene in specific uh, in specific uh, spaces in Africa. But the important thing about these African organizations, which developed in 2001, is that these organizations would consult and cooperate amongst each other, right? Which is something that the Af which is something that Africom does not do, and that's actually one of the main reasons as to why 
um, there's this position called the apocalyptic position that a lot of you, you call it the apocalyptic position, right? You're referring to debates within the scholarly literature. Yeah, I actually I don't want to take credit for calling it apocalyptic because it was actually um, Keenan who called it uh, apocalyptic, and it's through um, this book that was edited by Francis Halliday through Rootledge. Long story short, uh, they say that the apocalyptic position is a position that people adopt when they want to discuss AFRICOM. And the apocalyptic position says that AFRICOM, the reason why a lot of uh, people criticize it, is because the Africans feel like they were left out when AFRICOM was established. And what I mean by that, and this is when you have the whole heart of darkness, exceptionalism coming into play here. When you don't ask somebody what their opinion is about something, right? You automatically either one think that you're smarter than them or you're just more knowledgeable about their problems. And that's really what happened with AFRICOM. You had already institutions and organizations that were developed in Africa, right, based on African conditions. But what you had with AFRICOM is you had this organization which was developed without consulting or cooperating with African unions or African organizations which already existed. So here you have a situation where AFRICOM is replicating and duplicating um, the works of institutions which already exist, right? So what makes an institution which is developed by Western interlocutors more beneficial to Africa than organizations developed by Africans, right? So here you have this self-other um, kind of discourse, this heart of darkness discourse of Conrad that comes up again, um, or this, or this discourse of which our uh, our colleague Maximilian Fort would say, uh, you have the situation where only the West knows how to deal with the problems of the East, right? And the East have no choice but to develop these, but to adopt these solutions. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I got from your paper, and and yes, it does relate to Maximilian Forte's arguments yeah. that you have quoted extensively and yeah. very good selections there, which is to say, you know, in, in reference to this whole discussion of AFRICOM and Africa and the African Union, there is or there are indigenous bodies that Africans have developed to take mm -hmm. care of their own security and development issues, um, such as the African Union. And you, of course, are contrasting it throughout the entire paper to the approach of AFRICOM, mm -hmm. which is a U.S.-led or U.S.-dominated organization. And in this case, the approach taken by AFRICOM is that Africans are unable in most cases to solve problems or security issues or development issues, and that the United States via AFRICOM will be giving advice to Africans. It will be giving direction and giving advice. And I believe it was Fort, perhaps, that you quoted who said, you know, the United States and AFRICOM, they give. They don't take. They exactly. don't take direction yep. from Africa. This is Africa taking direction from the United mm -hmm. States via AFRICOM. And that's often the relationship that's being expressed or explored in your paper. Uh, for those who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Khaled Al-Kasimi. He is a PhD candidate here at McMaster, referring to a big article that he wrote about uh, the U.S.-Africa command. And yeah, I mean, this I, is... I actually had, just you, you just made me think of something uh, that can probably, like for the listeners, maybe they can understand what I was trying to say more. Um, if we were to take an example of terrorism, okay, African organizations or the African Union, the way they define terrorism is totally different than the way um, AFRICOM actually defines terrorism, okay? And I'm saying this... Uh, so, so, so the listeners can understand 
why is it a like why why is it an issue with us you know adopting Western solutions and not African solutions? Well, the definition of terrorism will probably uh, make this point make this point clear. So Africa, uh, the African Union states that terrorism is not simply non-state actors, right? It's not simply global networks. They say terrorism can also be state-sponsored. Okay, now that's in direct violation to the institutional academic definition that we get from places like Rand Corporation, which are heavily influenced in, uh, in academia in the United States. And the way AFRICOM defines terrorism is non-state actors. So terrorism in the eyes of AFRICOM can never be sponsored by states. Okay, and the reason that becomes an issue is you had a situation in Ethiopia happening in 2007, and um, there were pretty much Al-Qaeda groups uh, who killed six, 77 civilians, Chinese civilians, in an Ethiopian, uh, in an Ethiopian oil uh, space. And what you had was the African Union actually condemned these groups, right, um, and say that they're terrorists and they were funded by specific uh, states. What you had is a situation where AFRICOM and the Department of Defense in the United States came in and actually members of Congress threatened to impose sanctions on Ethiopia because the administration in the United States classified that as the pursuit as a violation of human rights where you cannot, um, you, shouldn't had, you shouldn't have stated that these groups were terrorists and funded by state actors or funded by uh, states. So here, this is just one example of how the issue of terrorism, right, in the eyes of, of the West might be defined in different ways than the way Africans define terrorism. And obviously that creates complications in the way you want to deal with an issue, right? Um, yeah. That's not a terribly difficult concept to understand, mm -hmm. although you have to refer to evidence and all yep. sorts of articles. There is a clash in viewpoints and perspectives between the African Union and countries that comprise it versus the approach that the Americans have yep. invited onto the, the continent. And I guess, you know, it, it is amusing that the Americans have decided that they are going to take responsibility for the security framework of the entire continent mm -hmm. and have their own definitions and ideas and their own mechanisms and own military forces and own relationships with African military. Mm -hmm. You think that would be somewhat presumptuous, but of course you explore that whole issue in the context of U.S. exceptionalism. Yes, you know, I mean, you you can't fully understand what's going on with regard to Africom functioning in Africa without this very important philosophy in the United States. I yes. mean, you took a whole section to talk about the history yeah. of it. It's true. I because I wanted to make a link between how there ha nothing much has really changed in the way the United States conducts or performs its foreign policy. If you look at, if you look at for the past like two hundred years or since uh, the founding of the United States, um, I think Ford says it best. He says there's there's a there's a line that you can trace from the 18th century until the 21st century. And what that line is characteristic of is the United States expanding its economic frontier by using a discourse that is exceptional. And you don't really need to look far behind. If you look at the recent US elections, Hillary Clinton was explicit in saying that the United States is a city on the hill. It's a bastion of democracy. And there's nothing wrong with you thinking that you think you're a bastion of democracy. What I have issue with is you stating that only your ways, your norms, 
your conduct of politics is the right way and that other countries can only adopt your way of conducting politics. Thus, they're perceived as modern, civilized, or on par. Um, so... It's quite an embarrassing contradiction, actually, because you have a state calling itself a preeminent and flourishing democracy, mm -hmm. an example to the whole world, and, you know, it kind of wants Africa and the rest of the world to adopt its institutions, which yeah. they often see as the measure of greatness. And at the same time, its philosophy expressed through AFRICOM is often that not only that African countries can't develop themselves properly or can't intervene in a security issue properly, but that they shouldn't intervene in a security mm. issue. That if an African state is having a problem with a militia or another state, that it should be the United States coming in. So yeah. it doesn't seem to ha hold a high regard for the concept of democracy on the international stage or the mm -hmm. international arena in which African states and countries, nation states exist and have their own means and mechanisms for addressing problems. So mm -hmm. it's like the imposition of U.S domestic policy and domestic views over a whole continent. Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually one of the things that Africa has been dealing with, right? A lot of people perceive it, as you were saying earlier, as this, this space that's, that's, that's infested with failed states, right? But it's only failed states if you, if you take the Western form of political governance as the only way of governing yourself. And what I mean by that is Africa has historically been um, governed not by this Westphalian form of governing, which is, you know, the nation state, demarcated borders, right? Uh, Africa has been developed with more community kind of grassroots forms of governance, which is community councils. Uh, a lot of places like in Ghana, women have a, hi a highly influential say in the way um, community conduct their politics and their daily lives, right? No, I see what you're getting at here. They're very closely related themes. Africans have had their own forms of governance, uh, community-oriented tribunals and, and partnerships and all sorts mm -hmm. of things that are very specific to the region that have to be taken seriously. And at, at the same time, the U.S. has a sort of cookie-cutter vision developed mm -hmm. from outside. And this relates to, again, the main points or the main themes and approaches and theoretical tools you use in the article, especially the concept of securitization, but mm -hmm. also that of the empire itself. Because AFRICOM is just one of several U.S. commands. That's mm -hmm. the nature of it. You have AFRICOM, so mm -hmm. Africa Command. And the U.S. has divided or parcelized the world into a number of commands mm -hmm. in which somehow Africa has, is now under the, I mean, from a, as a discursive framework or as a mm -hmm. concept, now Africa is a U.S. command. In, exactly. In the view of the U.S. military. So what is, how does that affect this securitization, this creeping securitization approach? Well, that's, that's actually the interesting part about Africa, the way it's being dealt by the U.S. administration. And this goes back to our, actually your first question um, about how Af Africa was dealt with during the Cold War by the United States. So what you have in historically Africa was, uh, was dealt with or the issues of African security issues were divided amongst three command structures, the European Command, the Central Command, and the Pacific Command, right? So this was historically, up until 2006, uh, kind of the, the main command centers that dealt with African issues. Starting arguably in 1997, and there's a reason why I'm mentioning 1997, which I'll probably get to later on. Uh, in 1997, up until 2002, you had this situation where Africa starts being securitized, right? So you start having um, defense strategists, political actors like the U.S. president uh, who have political capital 
they started talking about Africa using speech acts, right? That made it, that elevated it in, uh, in, in the, the elevated in importance to deal with. So securitization is when an issue moves from being dealt with in the realm of normal politics to the realm of emergency politics. Yes, that, okay. very good, right. Emergency as security. Yes. Uh, yeah, so... Um, you know, just for what people living in the post 9-11 world are going to understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Things that were considered a domestic pol political concern and something to be negotiated with in a political arena now become a security concern that's going to be dealt with by some kind of security military agency. Exactly. So here you have a situation. And I think for your listeners, I think it's important for me just to kind of briefly mention to them how an issue becomes securitized. So yeah, an an issue. The way an issue becomes securitized is, as we we're saying, it moves from uh, the realm of normal politics to the realm of emergency politics. Now, uh, scholars like Barry Buzan and Ollie Weaver from the Copenhagen School, which have kind of developed this notion of securitization, uh, they say that an issue for an issue to become securitized, one, you need to have individuals with high political power that start talking to an audience of people in a way that elevates that issue um, to a threatening kind of, kind of that, that elevates this issue from the realm of normal politics to emergency politics. And what they mean by that is, if you look at Africa, historically, the way it's been spoken of, it's, as we said before, in a threatening manner. So when something has been historically been spoken of in a threatening manner, that actually facilitates securitization. Because here you have the audience referring to the past and saying things like, oh, like, yeah, we're, yeah, we've heard of, you know, of Africa being infested with, you know, AIDS or, you know, non-state actors or mercenaries. So when, when, when the audience or when citizens have, um, when they appeal to the past and realize that, hey, you know what, Africa has been a place of turmoil and savagery that facilitates securitization, right? And these are what Barry Buzan and Ollie Weaver call facility conditions. So Africa can easily be securitized, unfortunately, because it fits the facility of felicity conditions of securitization, which is historically has been perceived as threatening, historically has been perceived as being ungoverned, historically has been perceived as a place that lacks governance, Right, so all of these issues compounded together create a situation and a fertile space for Africa to become dealt with using militaristic approaches, right? Um, I think, unfortunately, you're very right. And I, <laughs> I, mean, I think we see this, you know, in terms of just ordinary people, even here in Hamilton, looking at the TV or reading the newspaper, it seems now that whenever there's a crisis in Africa of any sort, especially just in the last few months, we've seen that there have been certain disease-related uh, crises mm -hmm. and outbreaks. And what's the response? The U.S. says, well, we're sending our military forces mm -hmm. to approach, and they have to set up military tents and soldiers and so on. And so the first thing they do if someone, if people are getting sick is they send uh, a military force, yep. uh, you know. And, and, and so that's the, it's, it's a security first, a military first approach. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's actually something that uh, the African Union has contested and highly criticized Africa about. It, like in kind of like quick terms, it's why would you think that we just want to adopt militaristic approaches to solve African issues? And the fact that that's the approach that AFRICOM 
adopts shows you this hierarchical interpretation of politics where the United States does not even want to listen what Africans have to say about their solutions to dealing with famine or uh, specific uh, human security issues. And this, again, is reminiscent of the way the United States has historically dealt with um, foreign encounters. We can look at Mexico. We can look at uh, you know other places, the indigenous groups in in uh, the Americas. You know the way they treated longhouse communities, right? Um, Iroquois communities. Uh, it was always in a manner where you don't know how to govern yourselves. We know how to govern you, right? And you have to follow our kind of uh, our template of governance. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to disagree with you there, and certainly you have laid out the history very effectively mm-hmm. of the Monroe Doctrine and every sure. related idea, uh, which they, there, are, there are a straight line of related ideas, as, mm-hmm. as you pointed out. Right, so what you've outlined so far is that the United States, through AFRICOM, seems to have a prescription for Africa in so many different fields. Although the AU has uh, its own mandate and orbit of what it's supposed to be handling, and Africans have developed their own juridical and legal structures and all sorts of things. The, the U.S. has an economic program. It has a political program. It has a security and military program. It has a juridical program for all of Africa. It has one big straitjacket sort of to, to put the whole continent in. And I can see how that is causing tension, as you've pointed out, throughout the whole article. And I guess it relates in part the AFRICOM and the expansion of this U.S. frontier. And I, I know mm-hmm. that's a metaphor you use a lot. Uh, we have the expansion of a U.S. frontier, and you can't really understand that without making the connection to economics. And it, it is the expansion of a U.S. economic frontier mm-hmm. to Africa, which in this day and age is being interpreted more and more through a military or security framework. So mm-hmm. Africa has always been in an economic relationship with the United States, and it's increasingly securitized now. But it also relates to international competition. You look at China, for example, and I know the United States has a different viewpoint than the African Union or a number of African countries with regard to China. With these trading relationships going on, the Africans seem to perceive their interests and their relationships differently than the U.S. on this. How are they interacting with China? Uh, Well, uh, historically, the reason why Africans prefer, and I'm using this word carefully prefer to deal with Chinese is again because one they're willing to consult and cooperate with African leaders right uh, for those who don't know this the African Union headquarters was built by China right so this kind of shows you the symbolic relationship that they kind of have um, and what I mean by they willing to consult and cooperate what I mean by that is uh, they're not imposing specific uh, methods or specific modalities of governance and this is something that actually uh, Muammar Gaddafi really appreciated with the Chinese. Uh, when Chinese would actually come to Libya, they would actually teach Libyans the technicalities and the expertise of how to refine specific things in relation to oil. Now, bring the case with the American corporations, and this is something that through embassy cables through between Tripoli and Washington, it's, it's highly explicit where the Libyan government would refuse to actually bring in Western corporations or U.S. corporations like Bechtel, for instance, is precisely because they, one, would not be interested in teaching uh, local Libyans about the expertise or the technologies that they're using. So long story short, the Chinese are willing to not make Africa forever dependent on it. 
right? So the way the Chinese deal with Africa, they obviously go in, they obviously have economic interests, nobody's denying that, but they're at least willing to, uh, to teach, right? And allow Africans to not be forever dependent on the Chinese. While in the, in the American case, the, the United States wants Africa to be consistently dependent on it for either economic resources, uh, knowledge, you know, uh, technological knowledge, intellectual patents and stuff like that. So that's one of the ways where China defers from the United States in dealing with Africa, right? Again, it's a very colonial relationship, right? Uh, the Africans feel like the United States always treats them in a colonial, colonized kind of relationship where the Chinese don't even have this relationship. Like, the Chinese are not historically interventionist, right? You can say as much as you want about China during the Cold War, but a person cannot trace a linear line from China and, you know, historically and say that China has an informal empire like the United States. There are two differing approaches mm -hmm. towards Africa between two powerful countries, the U.S. and China, and you can see why they would be different. I mean, it's been put out there by China and others that, I mean, until recently, China was considered an underdeveloped country. Mm -hmm. It was a country that had been exploited by colonizers and was not as um, advanced economically as it wished to be. Although that's been changing rapidly in, in the last few decades, China would approach African countries saying, you know, we're like you, mm -hmm. we're one of you, or we're, I mean, we're trying to develop in our own way, but our relationship to you is, is not identical to the way Western countries have exploited China or mm -hmm. have these kind of relationships. So that's one issue. And of course, China as a country that has been, you know, threatened by a world system of imperialism has probably been more vocal about the importance of sovereignty and that sort of thing in the sense that China does not want people telling China what to do mm -hmm. inside China. So China does not take the approach in Africa of telling African countries what to do. Exactly. I think that's a huge point that's somewhat understated or we haven't made a, enough of a big deal about it in that African countries are probably getting tired of being lectured to all the time and having all their trade agreements tied to structural adjustment programs mm -hmm. or basically someone telling them, like France or the UK or the United States, we'll give you this $300 million in aid, but you have to make this reform and restructuring to your... Uh, you know, you got to privatize this hospital or you know liberalize the economy in this way or change your development plans to be what we want them to be. If China doesn't do that, it's not being so presumptuous as to tell African countries, you have to rework your internal arrangements in order to get this external aid. Mm -hmm. That's actually interesting because that's actually the case in Venezuela right now. I know this is not Africa, but it, it is related. You have Russia and China actually helping Venezuela restructure its debt, right? So this is the same. This can also be applied in Africa where the Chinese would obviously have loaned Africans money but they would make sure that they would come up with kind of a time frame of how long it will take Africans to actually pay it back in the sense where um, China obviously takes resources from Africa. So they would make sure that they subtract a specific amount from the trade of resources and allocate it to the debt, which is something that you don't really have when it comes to the IMF giving structural adjustment programs or structural adjustment aid to African countries or or countries in South America, it's pretty much take the aid and it's actually better if you don't pay us back because we'll just accumulate interest on it, right? So here you have this relationship of, again, dependence and independence. The Chinese are willing to loan and also help you develop a portfolio or help you develop ways where you can actually pay back your debt, 
right? Instead of actually uh, kind of economically colonizing you, right, by giving you aid that you'll never pay back, right? So that's something that the Africans actually really appreciate and the African Union really appreciates from um, the Chinese and the way they perform politics with them. Um, Pampazuka Press uh, has a lot of books in relation to how China deals uh, with Africa and how the Africans deal with the Chinese, right? And I would actually, hi- I would actually, uh, for your listeners, I would actually direct them to actually go check out uh, pampazuka.com or Fahamu Press, right? Which is... I'm familiar with the first one. Okay. Um, they're actually related, right? Um, and yeah, they... if. People are more interested in the whole topic of how China deals with Africa. I would definitely, you know, suggest you go check uh, their website out. Well, that's actually good advice, you know, because they've done a lot of books and articles mm-hmm. um, on that website, which you, you can find. Hard to spell for mm-hmm. us, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think yeah, that you're setting the stage for the next uh, generation of research because. I think in the coming decades, we're probably going to be witnessing a somewhat changed international situation Mm -hmm. where countries in Africa or countries in South America might have more options to choose from when seeking international trade partnerships or aid and so on. It seems that the U.S. approach, unfortunately, has been to try to sort of close off Africa in its own arrangement or to see it as a increasingly securitized issue rather than an open trading uh, arrangement or or, where Africans and uh, South Americans and so on can can make their own arrangements and choose their own arrangements. So it Mm -hmm. it kind of portends future, you know, conflict, if not between the U.S. and African countries and the U.S. and China in Africa or the U.S., China, Russia and Latin America. Uh, the, The approach we're stuck with here, you know, in Canada living here in a NATO country is, yeah, they seem to be viewing securitization as an approach for foreign policy and for domestic policy. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a problem we seem to have to overcome. There's there's something to be said about that in relation to uh, the historical approach of the way the United States dealt with Africa and how you said in the future, you know, the future generations need to worry about this debt, right, that's actually accumulating. And the reason why I'm f- I find this interesting is because throughout the securitization process that the United States was conducting towards Africa, um, for instance, you had a report come out in 2000 and, uh, 2001, and it's called the Cheney Report. And it was actually put in place by the African Oil Policy Initiative Group, uh, the AOPIG. AOPIG, right. AOPIG, exactly. Yeah. And... It included members such as Don Norlin, who was the former ambassador of the U.S. ambassador to Chad, uh, former former Colonel uh, Karen uh, of the U.S. Air Force, and they're obviously uh, security experts. And the reason why I'm mentioning their names is because, again, they're people with political capital who have the capability of securitizing an issue because of their of their political power. So the 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 AOPIG is an important report because it came out one before AFRICOM was established, right? And it came out a year after 9-11, okay? And the report itself is very interesting, to say the least, in that it says, well, one, uh, Africa is going to be pretty much the, the locus for American oil imports, right? By 2025, okay? So these are uh, projections that were made by the report um, 
before the Libyan intervention happened, before AFRICOM even got established. So here you, here you have a situation where resources became a national strategic issue, right? Thus facilitating or prioritizing the securitization of Africa, right? So, so these are resources that are considered vital to U.S. national security. Exactly. You know, it's continued preeminence or whatever they call it around the world. Yeah. Uh, full spectrum dominance and all. They need to have this oil and this coltan and this and so on and so on. And so now those African minerals, those resources buried in African soil are a U.S. national security interest. And, and the reason why I'm mentioning that is because why would a country who has so much resources be damned to have to be forced to ask for aid all the time? That's the, <laughs> that's the link in my head that's happening, right? Because Magdoff in 2003 actually says 80 to 100 percent of, uh, of the U.S. important strategic minerals come from Africa. Right. So here you have a situation where, as you said, uh, the United States is pretty much securitizing a region for its own national security purposes while underdeveloping a continent that has the capability of developing without actually uh, needing to be under debt or dot or um, uh, take in structural adjustment program aids. I think the culmination of all of these issues that you've brought up can be seen in the case of Libya. Uh, you do refer to that and you refer to the work of two or three scholars. And it really is an example of the processes you've outlined. Mm -hmm. And that is that the United States now has its own umbrella over Africa and its own approach to problems, which it insists Africans follow, mm -hmm. and involves a legal and military framework, which has already clashed with the preferred problem-solving methods of African countries. So, I mean, what were you saying in terms of Libya? How does Libya show the the persistence of AFRICOM and the clash and approaches and this whole securitization method when it comes to Libya? Well, that's actually, thank you for bringing that up. Um, one of the, just for the, just for the listeners, the first intervention AFCOM conducted in Africa was in 2011 with the Libyan intervention, right? That was the first explicit intervention that you had AFCOM engage in along NATO. Uh, so, the case of Libya is important because it shows you securitization, it shows you exceptionalism, and it shows you expansionism, okay? Um, when you look at Libya, you have a situation where, one, Libya was suspended from the United Nations before it was even allowed to actually plead its case. Um, you had a situation where uh, African NGOs or African uh, leaders were actually barred from even testifying or actually want to inform the international community of what's actually going on. You even had African countries like Uganda, for instance, and I'm talking specifically about Dr. Uh, Ruhakana Rugunda, uh, who actually went explicitly said uh, he was he was actually part of the, the AMC, which is the African Union uh, Mediation Committee. And he was upset with the fact that um, the intervention in Libya occurred, and it was only after two to three months that you had, you know, American leaders and European leaders saying to the African Union, okay, now we can talk about what happened, or now we can see what we're gonna go from here. But that's after, to use Fort's words, after they slouched towards CERT. That's when they were willing to discuss and cooperate and consult with the African leaders. 
And that's something that is very alarming because it shows you the way the United States still performs its foreign ventures in a very hierarchical way where, again, the U.S. knows the solutions for the problems of any other region in the world, right? To the point where they're not even going to consult, consult or cooperate with you in what you think uh, should occur. And this is salient in the Libyan intervention. The African Union was not consulted or cooperated with in any shape or form when the Libyan intervention happened, which yeah. obviously led to the assassination of uh, Commandante Gaddafi. Uh, in 2011. And we also saw the economic dimension that you referred to because you pointed out thoroughly that U.S. exceptionalism and its view yeah. of itself as a shining city on a hill is closely tied with the economic expansion of the U.S. And after uh, they got rid of Gaddafi in Libya and turned it into a failed state, essentially, the American businessmen and uh, State Department personnel were quoted as saying things like, well, Libya is open for business now. If, yep. you're, if you're a U.S. company, you want to get back into Libya, you know, this is the time. And there was even a, even a more outrageous statement that came up when one person said, well, this is, a, this is a good way of, you know, now that I think about it, of dealing with economic problems in the United States and that if we have a, a shortage of investment opportunities or markets by entering Libya and, and uh, you know, and, and turning it into a place where we operate, this can relieve economic burdens at home. Yeah. So we basically accidentally define classical economic imperialism yeah. uh, just in terms of the U.S. naturally pursuing its own interest. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, you, you literally, as soon as, um, you know, the Libyan government was removed, ex exactly as you said, you had Philip Hammond come up and say, now Libya's open for business again, right? Uh, you have situations where, you know, French, British, American corporations were now ready, ready, willing, and able to actually go and conduct business in Libya. Um, yeah, that's that's actually one of the major reasons as to why uh, the Libyan Jamahiriya or the Libyan government during Gaddafi was very hesitant in actually opening up economic relations with the U.S. Uh, precisely because it was one, it had to go through kind of this neoliberal lens, right? And again, it went against the, the the revolutionary tenets of Libya, right? Because Libya is still or was in a revolutionary or revolution process, which started in the 60s. And they're still a part of the revolution or were part of the revolution, right? Depending if Saif al-Islam Qaddafi's son runs for presidency, we're not sure yet in the, in the, next, the next few months. Um, but absolutely. Libya was definitely the expansion of the U.S. economic frontier, and we see this after the collapse of the Libyan government and what happened. And that, again, f goes directly with the Cheney report of 2002, right, where it was forecasted that Africa will become the, the major uh, source of U.S. oil imports. You know, all you need to look at is look at what's happening in the Horn of Africa, in the Sahel, right? You, all, you see these, um, you know, pockets of terrorism erupting, more and more with, with the passing of time. And obviously, again, that justifies U.S. expansionism and it justifies AFRICOM, AFRICOM's presence, which is based on the fact that Africa has, you know, mercenaries, terrorists, and that's why we need to intervene there so we can stop them. Yeah, Libya's ongoing revolution didn't seem to integrate well with AFRICOM's framework, to put it mildly. And I think, yes, certainly the example you've described is, is very representative of the major issues that you're, you're addressing here. Mm -hmm. I think you've highlighted the major problems in the area in, in terms of how 
AFRICOM has approached the continent of Africa and how it has brushed up against or conflicted with what people are, are already doing there. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. I'm glad you waded through all that IR literature because <laughs> most of our listeners wouldn't have time to do that. So thanks for helping uh, clarify this and, and, and set us, I, I think, on a good footing to look at the issue in the future when, when you're doing research and when other Canadians are looking at how the United States and related countries have approached the continent, because this is an issue that has not gone away for us uh, as the securitization and militarization increases. Uh, we only get more and more stories to tell here mm -hmm. on this program or in the research that's being done here. So thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you so this. much. It's great.